National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for another edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to discuss American national security. Listeners of this show know we often discuss the tools of national power. Those tools include diplomacy, the power of sharing or not sharing critical information, military power, and economic power. Every nation has these tools at their disposal, and how these tools are wielded in support of national security can be referred to as the art and science of statecraft. These tools, depending upon how they are wielded, fall into two broad categories, hard and soft power. Today we're going to focus on economic power, and we'll look at both hard and soft power applications of the economic tools nations have at their disposal. With us to explore this issue is Professor Menevish Gilizolu. Gilizolu. She's sitting across from me, and I'm trying to make sure I pronounce that right. Menevish Gilizolu is an assistant professor of political science and the director of the International Relations Concentration at St. Olaf College. She earned her Master of Arts and her Doctorate in Political Science from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Her research examines the processes connecting foreign policy to international economics with a specialized interest in economic sanctions. She examines government's decisions to impose and end sanctions, as well as the consequences and effectiveness of economic sanctions. Professor Menevish Gilizolu, welcome to National Security This Week. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Professor, uh, before we start talking about sanctions, which is our primary topic today, I just want to get a little more on your background. What was it about the topic of political science that interested you enough to earn a doctorate in the field? And can you talk a little bit about your journey to to joining the faculty at St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I was born and raised in uh, Turkey. Um, a lot of interesting stuff um, are happening in Turkey when it comes to politics. I grew up in a family um, where we would always like have the news uh, in the background, a lot of like dinner conversations around what's happening um, in the country, but also in the uh, in the world. Because I mean, you're talking about a country that's been heavily impacted by what's happening in the region, um, but also in other parts of the world as well. I think that was kind of my upbringing. Um, and then I got fascinated um, in my undergraduate studies about, at the time, uh, Turkey, its potential membership to the European Union um, was very popular, a lot of conversations around that. Um, so kind of like that got me interested in, um, in the major. And the more I took classes, the more I got interested in kind of international relations um, side of it, um, which took me to my PhD program. Um, I was a really good student. <laughs> I had a lot of internships in um, various fields that I didn't enjoy. So I wanted to stay as a student uh, after graduating. And I still am a student. Like, I'm still learning every day. So I figured that's what I want to do for a living. Like, I want to keep learning. Uh, every day something new happens in the world. And I'm getting a lot of joy, joy out of just learning what's happening. And then teaching everyone, uh, having conversations with students, what what's happening on the news and trying to help them to put everything in context a little bit. So, yeah, that's pretty much my journey. I I think it's actually absolutely true that in this field, international relations, political science, uh, the national security field Mm -hmm. more broadly, 
you never stop being a student of what's happening out there. Exactly, right? <laughs> Every day something new happens, um, something to read about, something to get excited about, um, something to apply what you know. I, I, I recently read that, that Turkey changed the official name. Is that right? They did. Well, how, um, how do you say the, the official Turkia? name? Turkey. Turkey. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's it was a current kind of like, I guess, the desired rebranding. Okay. Um, if you wish. Yeah. yeah. And, and for our listeners, the nation of Turkey sits at an incredibly important strategic crossroads, which is why it's such an important nation in the world uh, based on what's happening in the world, even today. But, Absolutely. But throughout all of human history, Absolutely. it's sat at a, in an incredibly it's important For location. sure, it's a really, really interesting case for us political scientists uh, to study um, and, and to think about. Again, it's a country where, like, every day something new is happening in the country, in the region, um, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to watch, honestly, from a political science point of view. Uh, so, Professor uh, Gilazolu, uh, our topic today is on economics as a tool of national power. Uh, I found that diplomacy and the use of the military uh, tends to get the bulk of consideration when it comes to discussions about national security challenges. Uh, but opportunities with economics at the heart of any strategy, it always seems to get sort of short shrift in these discussions. Uh, your research into the economic components of foreign policy uh, what what drove you to take a hard look at the different ways economic tools can be used to entice or coerce nations to act according to international norms? Mm-hmm. I think it's where you started with, right? You There's this um, idea that maybe we spend a lot of time thinking about wars and thinking about military power when we are thinking about power. Um, maybe up until the um, Russian invasion of the Ukraine, I mean, we, we think about wars as a rare event, right? Um, they rarely happen. It's a good thing that they rarely right. happen. Um, but, but thinking about the economic side of power, um, it, it's very more common. Um, and during my graduate studies, I wanted to spend my time thinking more about what's happening on a daily basis as a part of um, government's decision-making in international relations as opposed to rare events. Uh, I was more interested in thinking about um, countries punishing one another through economic means or rewarding one another um, true economic means, um, just because it's, um, I think more humane compared to, um, maybe studying wars or less depressive if you wish, but also it's happening way more frequently than maybe we give credit for. So I, I was interested in thinking about power through an economic lens and thinking about policymaking as like an economic statecraft. Um, instead of like military and hardcore security matters. Um, and they're really connected. And I think that without understanding the economic piece, we don't really have a good understanding of how hard power works even. Yeah. Um, that, that was my starting point. Could, could you sort of explain to, the, to our listeners, how, how is it that you do the research on this topic? I, you don't have to get into super detail mm-hmm. here, but I think just broadly people would be really curious to hear this. Yeah, my um, main approach is um, through uh, empirical analysis. Um, a lot of my work uh, has been focused on kind of large-end um, studies, time series studies, looking at um, sanctions and uh, foreign aid and economic statecraft through a kind of like a data-driven uh, okay. point of view, a lot of heavy theorizing about um, my expectations, my theoretical expectations, and um, testing them like through rigorous empirical approaches. And um, hypothesis testing is what's been at the core of my um, research from a methodological point of view. Um, 
Yeah. Okay. No, that's good. If that's that makes good. sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Professor, let's talk about economic tools in, in more detail. Uh, let's start with the soft power options, all right? Uh, which, you know, from my perspective, it tends to be ways in which uh, economic t- opportunities are offered from one nation or, or a group of nations to another uh, nation to entice desired behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or to seek desired outcomes. Uh, not, it's not a bribe. <laughs> it's more like one nation giving another nation an opportunity to secure better economic conditions uh, for its people. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about the, some specific options available to nations to use these more supportive uh, economic measures in pursuit of uh, foreign policy objectives? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even before that, I, I think a good question to think about is, like, what is power, mm. right? Um, and I, the very common definition is, like, you are essentially trying to get someone to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do, right? Or you would try to stop someone from doing something um, that they wouldn't otherwise do, right? You want to change um, their behavior in some ways. And true soft power, um, what we mean is, and especially using like economic tools for soft power, um, trade comes to mind, right? Creating opportunities for maybe more continued trade interactions. Um, foreign aid comes to mind, like actually giving either like monetary resources or goods from one government to another. Um, we can also even think about foreign direct investment a little bit. It, it's not necessarily a government, government, government to government interaction, but what private actors are doing can definitely have a lot of impact on um, these recipient economies in terms of shaping what their policies look like. And, and governments have to give authority to their private industries to be able to do that to, to one another, right? I mean, there has um, to be a, a sanctions, I mean, a, a regime in place to allow foreign direct investment to correct. actually take place. Correct. Okay. Um, so governments can tell their private entities that they're not allowed to yeah. do business um, with other nations, right? That's kind of what we are talking about in the forms of sanctions. Mm-hmm. Um there are also some ways in which governments facilitate their private actors doing uh, business with others by giving maybe some incentives for investing in another country. Um, they're signing like bilateral investment treaties with another government to maybe ease their private actors' business with another country, uh, right? Or maybe minimizing their risk when they're investing. So governments do play a role in foreign direct investment as well, even though it's like private actors. Um, choice to invest and what that investment will look like. But I think, like, broadly speaking, we are thinking uh, trade, signing trade agreements, not signing trade agreements, what that trade agreement looks like, um, imports, exports, figuring out the level of that as one category. Foreign aid um, would be another. And then private actors' um, behavior through foreign direct investment and the extent which it interacts with government would be the third one, are the three typical tools, I would say, governments use as a part of their soft economic power. Okay. Um, you're correct to say that it's not a bribe, um, <laughs> yeah. but sometimes it does come with attachments, right? Sometimes explicitly stated, uh, sometimes not so much. Um, but we know that there needs to be some strings attached if the ultimate goal is to change behavior, right? It's not, it's not necessarily free money that we're, that we're talking about. It's directed at a, a, at a, 
purpose, right? Um, yeah. In the long run, I'd say. How about uh, like extraction of natural resources? I mean, that tends to be sort of a mutually beneficial mm-hmm. uh, engagement from one country to another. I mean, for all these things, like we are talking about a mutually um, beneficial, a win-win situation. Uh, same for foreign aid, right? So we know that um, by spending a lot of money um, through foreign aid, Essentially, you're maybe lowering the chances of a civil war in a, in a country. You're lowering the chances of a refugee crisis. You're investing into their like consumers, so they're like better consumers of what you're selling, right? So there are a lot of benefits that governments get out of foreign aid. Trade, I think, it, right, it's kind of intuitive that uh, if you increase trade with a government, you're also getting a lot of, a lot of benefits out of it. Same, same for FDI. You would say that... It's a win-win situation. I think same for natural resources as well. I was mostly thinking that as a part of trade because ultimately it's one of the commodities that you buy and sell. But I mean, look at what Chinese government have been doing uh, over the past (laughs) years, like all these heavy investments in Africa and all these like Belt Road Initiative countries and South America, um, heavy investments in natural resources. Um, A lot of people look at this and say, this is a win-win situation. A lot of people look at this and see it as like new imperialism from the Chinese government, right? There are different ways of seeing this, um, but ultimately natural resource trade is a big component of the soft power as well. Yeah. Uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Menevish Jilazolu from the College of St. Olaf, and we're discussing economics as a tool of both hard and soft power. Uh, so, Professor, let's, let's talk about economics as a hard power application, uh, different than what we were just talking about now. Uh, for me, anytime you're initiating sanctions against another country, uh, that's a hard power choice. Mm-hmm. It's sort of punishment in a way. It's not like using military power, of course, but but the impacts can be fairly significant. Can you tell us uh, more about the use of sanctions and the ways in which economic tools can be employed to coerce a nation to change its behavior? So what, what are the different things we can do if we're going to sanction a nation? Absolutely. Um, so you can take everything that you do with soft power and you can tell them that they're not coming anymore, right? So that's the, um, that's the idea behind what we call a negative inducement. Um, so all these soft power instruments like trade, foreign aid, FDI activity, they were positive inducements, right? But if you tell a government that you're going to cut foreign aid, yeah. it becomes economic sanctions, right? If you tell a government that um, you're going to impose import or export restrictions, that becomes sanctions and that becomes a use of hard power. Same for FDI. You're going to tell the government that your private companies are not allowed to invest in your economy anymore. So the soft power can quickly turn into hard power. Mm. And that's exactly one of the goals of using soft power tools, right? If you actually create these interdependencies, you're also buying leverage because in the future, you're buying the opportunity to say, well, we're going we're gonna to cut these now, right? So you're creating these connections through soft power so that you will have tools available to you if you want to use hard power, right? So that's kind of what we think as hard power, turning these soft power tools and taking them away. So that's one way of seeing it. Um, we also um, have a lot of kind of financial tools available to us if you want to use hard power. Like I'm sure we'll talk about that in the context of Russia, but um, essentially targeting banks, uh, private banks, uh, central banks, the entire financial system, uh, the ability to use um, currencies, right, limiting those opportunities in the finance realm 
can be one. And with hard power, we also see um, governments sanction individuals, uh, mm -hmm. entities, private corporations uh, as a way to uh, punish the leaders, as a way to punish the kind of the elites of the economy, if you wish. That can also be a hard power tool. But ultimately, allowing economic opportunities and at some point kind of taking them away, right? Restricting them, um, taking those rewards away um, and creating more and more cost into your behavior is kind of the idea behind the hard power okay. uh, economically. I, I have two, two follow-up questions. The first is you, you mentioned uh, sanctioning, sanctioning individuals. Mm -hmm. is th that's kind of a relatively new tactic, isn't it, on the sanctions regime um, side? I would say so, yeah. Um, maybe in the last 20 years, it became more popular. Um, so w they are essentially measures what we call targeted um, okay. sanctions. So instead of having these comprehensive sanctions imposed on the economy at large, you would identify individuals who are linked to the policy that you're trying to punish or change. Um, and this essentially like stems from years-long like findings that... Um, showing that sanctions do have massive humanitarian consequences yeah, yeah. Uh, for the individuals who have nothing to do with the policy that you're trying to punish, right? right. We've sen seen this in every single case where we have comprehensive sanctions, like Cuba, Iraq at the time, Iran. Um, they almost always have these um, really significant negative impact on the individuals on the ground, right? So... Um, the idea behind having these targeted sanctions was essentially to identify individuals or entities, companies who are linked to the policy that you're trying to punish um, and targeting them, their ability to move money, their ability to travel in the hopes that they're going to be the ones making a decision about keeping the policy in place or changing action. Um, and we are seeing this uh, almost like a, default response now in every single case um the u.s government especially they have been uh, working with the treasury investing a lot of resources into creating these like blacklists um making sure that they're identifying correct individuals a lot of intelligence goes into it the aliases that go by <laughs> 10 different names that they can like open a bank account with right um everyone that's connected to them like you just don't want the family members of putin you also want like potential girlfriends and you have to like identify who they you know like it's a really intelligence heavy uh part of sanctioning um and it's becoming more and more common and that blacklist uh essentially becomes longer and longer every time I go in and see <laughs> what it looks like. So it almost sounds like uh, we've moved into the realm where, where the power of information is so strong on a global scale that we can do really surgical targeting of specific kinds of sanctions on individuals. You're absolutely right. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the goal. Um, I mean, there's still a lot of loopholes and a lot of weaknesses in these efforts, like especially at the individual level. Because, um, again, the more you target these individuals, the more you're pushing them either offshore or you're pushing them to get creative and hiding where their money is. Mm -hmm. uh, this is just like money laundering or, you know, any kind of following the money, um, following the money policies like here in the U.S. or like elsewhere. The more you do um the the maybe more creative uh that these individuals get so it's it's a really hard 
hard enterprise. Um, and the effectiveness, at least in the literature, scholars are still debating that. Yeah. Um, due to these loopholes and these elites and individuals like them having a lot of different tools at their disposal um, to kind of overcome <laughs> overcome that information um, policies in a way. Yeah. So it's one thing to talk about sanctioning individuals, but if we go back uh, to the earlier topic where we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, positive uh, soft power applications of economic uh, tools and then uh, the hard power or the sanctions regime areas, that generally has always been nation to nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- do sanctions work best uh, between countries that have a, a an established economic relationship? Is that is that when they're more effective? Um, so yes and no. Uh, uh, yes, because um, essentially those are the cases where you will have more leverage, okay. right? Ability to hurt, essentially. It's stronger. But at the same time, we're also talking about a pool of countries that you have less of a reason to have conflict with, right? So um, we are talking about, say, like Canada, yeah. all these like Western partners, like they are the ones in theory... Um, there are a lot of economic leverage, right? Uh, but at the same time, A, it's mutual. Yeah. Um, and, and B, they are the countries that you're trading this heavily for a reason because you get along well, right? You, are, you have similar foreign policy goals. So what are the chances of like US and Canada, US and the UK and European partners have a need to sanction one another uh, in a really comprehensive way? Well, not we, that likely. We, we didn't too much in the past, but uh, about the time that you joined the faculty at Saint Olaf, there was suddenly an, an eruption of sanctions <laughs> going both ways in all these different areas. In in small scales, like especially in some trade issues, yeah. uh, we commonly see these little um, like trade sanctions very targeted to industries. Okay. Um, nothing really comprehensive, but you're absolutely right that again, one of the reason why you create these interdependencies with countries is to be able to turn that interdependency into a hard power situation where you have leverage. If, so, ne- if needed. If needed, yeah. if needed, right? Um, so one of the findings in the literature, like you're absolutely right that um, the more interconnectedness that you have with a country, the more leverage than you would have. But then the problem is you cannot impose sanctions on a country to hurt them if it's going to hurt you. Mm. Um in a really immense way, right? So now I'm thinking like Germany and France and all these European countries not being able to cut Russian oil, right? So right. those interdependencies might also create costs on you as the imposer. So it can limit what you can do, right? So there is like an intricate balance. Like, yes, these economic interdependencies will give you more leverage. But if you are also really stunned to lose, um, if you were to sanction then that can tie your hands and it can turn into a leverage for your trade partner, right? So there needs to be an intricate balance in that. Maybe you don't want to be connected too much because <laughs> um, then it will become too costly for you. Um, but if you're not connected at all, then you don't have any leverage, yeah. right? You, if you're not trading, you cannot punish them with cutting trade, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there needs to be a balance there, I think. It's really a catch-22 situation. Mm-hmm. You want to be strongly connected to other countries so you can have that mutual economic benefit, certainly for your own country. Uh, but if you if you decide to do any kinds of sanctions against that nation, you're going to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. I think we saw that pretty clearly uh, when President Trump decided to uh, throw up some, some tariffs, some trade barriers with Canada and Mexico. 
uh, to pressure those two nations to renegotiate the NAFTA treaty to mm-hmm. what we have today. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, theoretically remove a lot of those uh, tariffs and whatnot once you get the new trade agreement that seems to be more mm-hmm. favorable towards the United States. Although I think the uh, was it the U.S. Uh, MCA uh, yeah. agreement uh, theoretically was more beneficial for all all three nations. It really updated what NAFTA had had, mm-hmm. you know, twenty some years ago to something more more modern today. But uh, again, like even with those like wins, I mean, again, consumers are still facing like right. some of the price um, <laughs> pressures due to the protectionism that was adopted at the time, like. Around the same time, um, protectionist measures like imposed on China. I mean, we are talking about inflation, like every single one of us is talking about inflation. Part of it goes back to the protectionist policies um, around those times, too. Again, those measures, even if uh, they create a win, they're almost always coming with a cost attached to them because of these interdependencies, right? You can use hard power. But if you use hard power in an economic way against a, a trade partner or someone you have all these like economic interdependencies with, it's going to be costly for you. So you'll have to decide which one do I care more about, right? You have to outweigh these costs that are um, that are there uh, against the benefits that you're you're expecting out of the policy. Yeah, usually it's pretty easy to figure out what's your uh, you know. And for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? You can pretty much figure what those are. But what, what always gets you in the national security arena are the third and fourth order impacts that you can't predict, <laughs> that uh-huh. you don't see coming, that happen later, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, Professor, let's talk about some case studies, case okay. studies that effectively highlight some of these soft and hard power applications uh, of economic tools in, in, in foreign affairs. And let's start with the positive, the soft power examples. Can you give us a, a couple of examples where a country or, or countries offered another nation opportunities for economic growth as a means to alter the status quo. In other words, a, a nation changed its behavior. They actually changed their behavior when there was a carrot offered to them rather than a stick. Uh, any any uh, thoughts on that? I mean, instead of like thinking about just one case where like you give them money and then they change their behavior type of like a way, and I think it might be like a nice kind of connection into the, the Russia case that we will discuss. I'm thinking after the end of the Cold War, reintegration of all these Soviet economies and countries into um, into the Western world in a way. So hard power, you can see it through all these economic trade agreements, some of the countries joining the European Union or at least going into that path, um, integration like with NATO as a military alliance, foreign aid that's been heavily used as a tool of soft power, trade agreements, giving investment to private companies so that they go in and invest. We are not talking about this one foreign aid package. You take it, change this little behavior, and then here's a success story. But we are talking about years and years of like careful planning of using these soft power tools to a foreign policy goal that you have, right? Reintegration of these economies into the Western Western world, um, and you don't only have these like economic goals in your mind, you also have these like security goals in your mind, right? You want to have these like buffer between you and Russia, you want to make sure that they're going to be your allies um, in the future and not Russian allies. So that's kind of what I wanted to, I think, highlight. And these things take years, right? Um, We are not talking about 
this like one shot, I'm going to sign this train agreement, you're going to do X, Y, Z. Um, but there are also these like little um, kind of more um, small policy wins, if you wish, through these soft power things. And that's what we call uh, issue linkages. Okay. So you take one issue, say trade, and you're using that trade to change behavior in something else. So every trade agreement that's been maybe signed in the past 10, 15 years, they would have clauses in them that will be about like environmental protections, that will be about like labor rights. Here are the trade conditions that we will have. Um, really favorable, um, lucrative deals. But the, the deal is on the table only if uh, you're implementing these environmental protections or you have to show me that you're not using child labor or there are enough like labor standards in place for me to actually implement the, the trade agreement, right? So governments do this all the time in every single trade agreement that they're getting. And even with the new, um, new NAFTA, like USMCA, mm -hmm. we have some labor right clauses, we have some environmental protections in place um, in an effort to use that soft power in the issue of trade to get something else that's non-trade related um, out of that agreement, if you wish. So it's, it's really... It, the way governments approach these things, it's not really a quid pro quo. It's really creating sort of a spider web of connectivity that drives everybody toward or drives the other nations towards a, a kind of a being good neighbors. Is exactly. That, that... Um, or essentially, here are what I what, what my policy priorities are. And I'm going to use every interaction that I have with every single government to find opportunities for me to advance these policies. It can be human rights, it can be environmental protections, it can be counterterrorism, right? Whatever interaction that you enter into, you still have these like major policy issues in your mind and you're looking for opportunities to see if you can use this economic leverage that you have and then turn that into some steps forward in these other policy areas that you have, right? That's pretty much what soft power is thinking about all the military aid uh, that's been going into the Middle East uh, for counterterrorism purposes, right? So, again, it's not just like take this money, do X, um, but take this money, take this money for the next 10, 20 years, right? And here are my policy priorities. And I'm hoping that that money will be used towards some of these in a way. So one of the things that I've always been interested in when, as I watch these international negotiations take place is there are governments out there in the world, and, and America does it too, where government subsidizes certain aspects of some industries more than others. Mm -hmm. Agriculture is a great example that gets heavy subsidization, even in the United States, does certainly in Europe. I have to think that in the system of capitalism that most of the democracies around the world use, there's an effort in those negotiations, those trade negotiations, these soft power negotiations to limit to the greater extent or to as great extent as possible how much government subsidizes a particular industry so that you're actually creating a, a real a competition, a fair competition in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that true or – I mean, what you're describing is like what in political science we um, talk about as like a two-level game. Okay. Um, so it's this idea that there's this government like the U.S., right, doing all these international negotiations, signing trade agreement, choosing who to give foreign aid to. That's happening at one level, at the international level. But every government who is doing these international interactions, they would also have the domestic story at hand, right? They have their own 
elections, domestic policy priorities, the reasons for subsidizing one industry over the other, right? So all of these are happening at the domestic level, right? So lobbying to give foreign aid to one country and not for the other. Lobbying for signing um, the nuclear deal with Iran, the lobby for not signing the um, nuclear deal with Iran, right? So it's this two-level game where governments have to delicately um, kind of balance, right? Mm -hmm. Should we include more um, gas restrictions with Russia or not, right? So they are having this like balancing act for every soft power and hard power decision, which complicates the whole story. And to me, it makes it way more fascinating. But um, it essentially becomes a challenge for governments to pursue some of these goals because they also have to care about what's happening at home and what they prioritize politically, domestically, right? The goals that they have as politicians who wants to get elected. So this is like this whole complex system where governments are trying to use hard power and soft power while balancing what their needs are in the domestic arena, if that makes sense. It does make sense. I think what I hear you say is that the domestic politics in any given nation, there's a there's a a heck of a lot of pressure on the political leaders, even when they're negotiating with other countries around the world, from their own domestic constituencies uh, regarding what what they can offer or what kind of sanctions they would want to put on another nation, because it will so dramatically affect elements of uh, of their own society, their own ec- economic uh, structures. Absolutely right. So I mean. The, the Iranian deal that um, we are still talking about. Um, <laughs> and might be talking about again if we, yeah, if we, if probably. If we negotiate a new deal. Um, I mean, the, the, the U.S. government, um, if you look at it, the, 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 the priorities, the, the preferences, nothing has changed between the time the Obama administration signed the agreement and the Trump administration um, left the agreement, right. right? So the U.S. is still the U.S., but if you change the domestic actors that are making these decisions, then you change the entire calculation around the use of these soft power and hard power tools, right? So um, that's that's a challenge um, when it comes to trying to formulate these things, uh, even if at the um, bureaucratic level, people are still the same at the Treasury, at the State Department, um, but the policy preferences and priorities change. Um, and if you actually like do that for every single nation um, that has to cooperate with one another in these deals, yeah. you then complicate things by a lot. <laughs> it, it strikes me that most countries around the world, even the United States uh, in, this, in this regard, mostly uh, throughout our history, when, it, when one administration makes, sets U.S. policy the following administrations generally follow that policy yes. generally. That that has mm-hmm. sort of been a little wishy-washy over the last six years or so, but yeah. but generally in, in U.S. history, we have carried mm-hmm. out these things. Uh, well and for away. a good reason, yeah. right? So we've been talking about these uh, soft power policies being in place, not as these like one-shot efforts to change a policy, but you're talking about these things being a part of a long-term plan and helping you achieve some foreign policy goals. And you want some predictability in that, right? Uh, you cannot change your foreign aid policy from every ad- one administration to the next in every like four years, five years. Right. <laughs> then you cannot really have your partners then rely on you in a way or um, kind of expect them to even um, kind of act in line with your policy preferences. So especially like in democracies, you would definitely expect some foreign policy continuity from one administration to the another, assuming that 
the government's priorities and policies, those actions remain the same. But you're absolutely right that in the in the past maybe like five, six years, that's not what we've been seeing. And that's, in my opinion, is hurting like American credibility and its ability to use hard power and soft power. Um, because every nation really is seeking a stable, predictable framework Correct. in which to operate. And instability is usually very bad. Yes. And um, not just the, the governments that you are um, trying to change, but also the governments that you're partnering with for that change, right? So take the Iranian deal. Um, it was a deal that was signed with the European partners, right? It wasn't the U.S. deal alone. Um, and it is getting hard and hard then to, to trust American government's commitments and to uh, deals like that um, if it becomes easy for one administration to pull out and the next one to join. And, you know, um, so not just the countries that you're trying to influence with soft power and hard power, but also the partners that you have along the way, right? Uh, it's becoming hard for the U.S. to actually secure these partnerships. Yeah, uh, let, Let's actually focus in on on sort of the, the hard power side. Uh, mm -hmm. And we've talked one example, the uh, Iranian nuclear deal, maybe two or three other examples that you can come up where targeted tariffs, you know, sanctions, all-out embargoes, for instance, uh, actually changed uh, uh, the behavior of the country that's been targeted. Uh, can you think of any, I mean, are there any really good examples of when sanctions have been effective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are there are plenty, actually, like, um, everyone likes to talk about how sanctions do not work. Um, but there are a lot of cases in which they did. And it really comes down to how you define success too. Okay, right? Uh, if you think about, say, um, even if Cuba, right, if you want to, like, take Cuba, and then have your goal as Cuba turning into a democratic nation, as your goal, like no sanctions will be able to reach that bar, right? Um, but if you want to set your bar to, um, I don't know, preventing um, maybe deeper connections with the Soviet Union or like even with North Korea, right? If you want to set your bar to denuclearization, maybe we are not there yet, but maybe what sanctions are doing is to preventing a nuclear attack, right? Maybe making things harder for a nuclear nation to move forward, even with Russia. If you want to set your bar as US, uh, Russia pulling out troops, you will just say, no, sanctions do not work. But if that's not your goal, if that's not your bar, it's about long-term harming the US economy making the intervention harder, making sure that they're not going to win right away, right? Um, then your assessment of sanctions change. So I think, A, to answer your question in really long form, we really have to think about what success means to us, right? I think that's step number one. How do you want to define goals for sanctions? For North Korea, is it denuclearization? Or is it a stalemate where... Maybe they're developing some technology, but there's not going to be any attacks, right? Will you take this as a success or do you really want to see a denuclearization to call sanctions success, right? So I think that's step number one, um, because usually the stated goal of these governments will be different than what is actually aimed here. Like, obviously, the Biden administration will tell that they're aiming sanctions to stop the war, mm -hmm. right? But is that really the expectation? I honestly don't think so, right? Um, 
so that's, I think, step number one, thinking about what we mean by success and what we expect sanctions to do. But even if you want to put them to a really high standard, I think there are still some sex, uh, success cases where I'm thinking like South Africa uh, was a major one, like ending apartheid and uh, human rights violations um, in the country was like a big one that kind of everyone talks about. Even with Iran, like I would say that it was a success story where they managed to actually get to that deal. Um, in and of itself was, um, was a success story to me, even if it took like decades um, up to like 2016. So there, there are some success stories, but I think we would have a longer list uh, if you're more, um, more careful about how we define success uh, and effectiveness when you're thinking about sanctions. Yeah, I think that's, you just made a, a, just a tremendously great point when it comes to national security policy. Uh, when, our, when our political leaders here in the United States talk about, uh, you know, what success is, they, they don't define it very well. Uh, they, they frankly put a lot of really lofty expectations on what it is we are trying to accomplish without really framing it in a way where citizens can understand that if you're going to put economic sanctions on a country, it's just one component part of a broader set of initiatives that you're trying to use. And sanctions themselves are never really going to achieve the end state. It's just one other tool that we're using in the tools of national power to try to achieve a desired end state. Exactly, right? So expecting, like again, expecting sanctions to end war in Russia and change like Putin's calculation is expecting like too much from <laughs> yeah. uh, from sanctions, right? So, okay. um, but it's being implemented in conjunction with a wide range of policies, right? You're going to arm Ukraine. You're going to give like packages and packages and packages of military aid into the country. You're going to invest in intelligence programming. Like there's a ton that you're doing in conjunction with sanctions. And those are the sanctions that have the highest chance of succeeding to begin with, right? Doing this as a part of an overarching wider program and sanctions being one of the tools and it becomes immensely difficult to parse out the actual impact that sanctions would have as a part of this like larger policy uh repertoire if you wish right so it's like it's a, it's a, a very complex mathematical equation right and yep. and sanctions are just one variable <laughs> in, a, in a very complex mathematical equation absolutely for our audience you're listening to national security this week and i'm your host john olson our guest today is dr menevish jilizoglu <laughs> from the college of st olaf and we're discussing economics as a tool of both hard and soft power uh, so i, I want to ask you professor uh, how do sanctions how often do they actually work? I mean, if you you hear governments state, this is why we're putting sanctions on, right? And I want you to, you mentioned a couple of them, Cuba, right? Uh, Iran has essentially been under sanctions since 1979. Uh, have we, what have we accomplished with those two examples, Cuba and Iran mm -hmm. since 79, uh, Cuba all the way back to the Cuban Revolution? What have we specifically accomplished by having sanctions on those two countries for this long? And they've kind of ramped up and ramped down. Uh, we, the United States, and our closest allies tend to have those sanctions, but there are a lot of other countries out there that have just said, you know, we're done with the sanctions. We're going to mm -hmm. ignore those sanctions. Is that one of the things that undermines the success of sanctions, the impact of sanctions? So, um, in terms of percentages, right, um, there are, um, I mean, I work with data. There are a lot of different data sets that are out there um, tracking each sanctions um, and how successful they were based upon their stated goals. 
So depending on the data set that you're looking, it ranges from like 20% success rate to 40% success rate. Uh, again, if you're looking at different codings and different data sets and different definitions of success. Um, but with the challenge is, A, you are again figuring out if a case was successful based upon the stated goals. So we covered that um, stated goals are not necessarily what the actual goals were, <laughs> right. right? Maybe yeah. they were not a realistic um, expectation to begin with. Um, the other thing that we don't really have um, means to measure is to comparing sanctions against the role where they hadn't been imposed, right? So you have to compare Cuba with sanctions versus Cuba had the U.S. government not sanctioned in the first place, yeah. right? So we don't really have a way to observe that counterfactual, right? But if we had like a time machine and if we, there, there was like a way to actually do that, then we would probably see that it, it had worked compared to, compared to that scenario. So I think as researchers, we don't really have an opportunity to compare what we have with sanctions versus a hypothetical like reality without sanctions. So I think that's the... That's the challenge of researchers. That's the challenge of policymakers. But you're absolutely right to point out that uh, sanctions do have uh, kind of like a fading effectiveness over the years. So if sanctions are not being coded as success um, in maybe like a year and two years, it's getting clear that they're not going to achieve your like stated goals in year 15, in year 20, in year 50. Because countries find workarounds, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, they get used to it. Um, it's not like a shock to the system anymore that becomes their normal uh, in a way at every level. So in that sense, like we're not going to expect like Cuba again to turn into a democracy just because the U.S. is still sanctioning, um, sanctioning them. But then the question is, should you lift or should you keep them on, right? right? right. If you lift, will you be worse than n not working sanction status quo, Right. Um, because what's happening is if you lift them, the, the country will end up receiving more resources on more money. So then the question becomes, what are they going to do with the, the new resources that they have, right? Will they take that money and then invest that money into the reasons why you had the sanctions in the first place, right? Or will you be creating these interdependencies and slowly uh, creating these like win-win situations will turn them into countries that are choosing uh, policies that you like, right? So that's like a million-dollar right. question <laughs> that would require us to think about the hypotheticals that we cannot observe, right? And that's the challenge for researchers when we're thinking about sanctions success, sanctions effectiveness, what's going to happen if we end sanctions if we, if we uh, lift sanctions. Yeah, and I think that these two examples, Cuba and, and Iran specifically, are great examples of that. Mm -hmm. You know, what happens if you lift sanctions or, you know, reduce sanctions to a certain extent. In the case of Iran, it was, what, $100 billion went back to Iran. Most assessments were that, you know, they paid down debt. They tried to do mm -hmm. a lot of infrastructure stuff. But a number of that, a lot of those resources went to the influence that Iran is trying to wield in the Middle East. And with, in the Absolutely. case of Cuba, uh, when we started to remove some of the sanctions during the Obama administration, some of that money, that, you know, that they started having in the way of resources was used to crack down on internal dissent, no question mm -hmm. about that. Absolutely. Uh, but there was an opening there for the Cuban people to see what the rest of the world was like. Mm -hmm. uh, so and, 
that was the the core of the uh, disagreement between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, right? So um, it was clear to everyone that this new money, um, there will be some new money, like yeah. flowing into Iran, billions of dollars, like hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, from the Obama administration's point of view, again, that was something that opened the door for like win-win, win-win scenarios. The Iranian government, the Iranian people seeing that there is something here that they can win from, right? Oh, maybe we should creating stronger relations with the West. This is working, right? Um, but if you then try to see it from the Trump administration's point of view, they must have think like, well, the benefits of us being in a closer relation with Iran does not overweigh the money that they're going to be using to maybe have more influence in the region, maybe still keeping some of their nuclear program active, um, maybe some aid going into some terrorist organizations in the region, right? So you have to, again, balance the two, and it will come down to the assessment of a given, given government, given leadership at, a, at the time. We have about uh, 15 minutes or okay. so left uh, for our show today. Uh, there's a few questions I want to get to. you. And I, but before I do that, uh, before we press on, you had mentioned South Africa uh, ending apartheid. I, I think, as I think to myself in, in you know, modern world history, where sanctions have been applied and have been very successful, that is probably the, the crowning achievement of effective sanctions to drive a government to literally give up its entire structure, security structure, mm -hmm. politics, the whole thing, and, and to literally give up uh, power, essentially, to a completely new group of people in a peaceful transition. That's very rare. Um, yeah, very rare, right? But again, like, I study sanctions, so... But, I mean, I have to be fair. We, again, have to evaluate sanctions as a part of this, like, bigger policy framework that governments have and there were like many tools used along with um, economic sanctions to make that happen, right? Yeah. So it becomes really tricky um, to dissect the actual impact that sanctions have without really thinking about all these other policies that were used in conjunction to that. But absolutely, South Africa for sanctions. Um, and, and heavily influenced by domestic politics as well. Yep, and for I, sure. And I'm pretty sure that there once the... Uh, African National Congress, as a political movement, sort of denounced violence. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a framework available for open discussion uh, towards a, a peaceful resolution. And I think the British government helped facilitate some of those I'm negotiations. I'm assuming, yes. Yeah, I mean, um, that would make sense. I think it was the Brits. But you cannot like take, say, the South Africa model, take it as a package, write everything side by side, the sanctioning program, take that try to apply to say like Myanmar yeah. and, and try to stop the atrocities there like you'll see that it's not gonna it's not gonna work the way it did in South Africa right different times different country different domestic structure um so you really have to take these things like case at a time mm -hmm. um instead of having these like kind of sanction policy prescriptions that you're trying to like, apply everywhere um but there's there's not enough nuance that you can have in the in the sanctions world right so yeah. That's a challenge that a lot of these designers have uh, when it comes to designing sanctions policy. Uh, so, Professor, uh, we, you had mentioned earlier Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, the reaction from European nations, from the United States, 
uh, from other countries around the world, frankly, was was kind of astounding. I mean, the the the, the speed with which uh, really comprehensive sanctions were ramped up on Russia. Uh, I don't think I don't think we've ever seen anything like that. It's unprecedented. It, it, um, yeah. I, I think Iran would be uh, comparable to what happened to Russia, but it took years uh, to get that stage, not days. In, in the case of Iran. And we are not talking about, like, we are talking about a major global power here with Russia. So I think putting the two together, like how swift it was and how big of a player the target was, I think it was unprecedented. Can you talk us a little bit, talk through what sanctions specifically were laid on to Russia and why they matter so much? A lot of them. (laughs) Um, What 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 do you think are the most important? Yeah. I think we can again divide them into three. So the first, and I think the the strongest ones were on the the financial and the banking sector, right? Um, On major Russian banks um, and essentially cutting cutting Russian banks access to what we call SWIFT is this like kind of interbank messaging system. Like every time you want to send money out of Russia into a new bank, even if you want to like send money to your daughter who's a student uh, in the U.S., right? So it has to go through a messaging system um, between nations. So if you do not have access to that messaging system, that's been the standard worldwide, you will have to like fax, um, please send this money to this account. But, you know, um, it becomes really hard for you to move money around. Um, that was the major like blow, I think, to the, to the Russian economy, not being able to have the access to SWIFT it meant that they didn't really have the opportunities to implement the monetary policies that they did, move money um, outside of Russia if they wanted to, even having a hard time like dealing with the money that they have from some of the import sales that they did. So I think that was really major, like cutting access from SWIFT, um, not being able to use dollars in any of their transactions, right? Because every time you want to do any kind of transactions that involves dollars, it will have to go through New York, right? Mm. So it cannot be in-house in, in Russia. So not being able to do any of these things had an immense impact on the Russian economy. I think that was one, right? So the financial side, uh, cutting financial flows, cutting the use of dollars, um, essentially blocking what these banks can do, including the central bank. The second one was on trade. Um, heavy import restrictions. Um, we are talking about like Russia not being able to buy the semiconductors that they need, the microchips that they need. Um, and the goal there was making it really hard for the Russian military to continue the operations in a way, right? So being able to buy these like parts that they will need for their like missile systems or defense systems or whatnot. Um, and also exports, right? So, um, things that they're exporting became really limited. Again, the loophole there is still oil and gas. I mean, the U.S. was able to cut it fully, but it accounts for a really small percentage of what Russia is selling. So it wasn't really a big deal for them. Um, The European countries, I mean, huge variation within the European Union in terms of how much they rely on um, European natural gas and oil. Um, But there are some countries, I don't want to like give wrong percentages, but up to like 80 90 percent dependent but i think it averaged out to like 40 50 percent germany, um, <laughs> germany um 
it averages out to like 40, 50%. They have a lot of plans limiting that reliance, but um, they still cut a lot. But we are still talking about a time where the, the prices are the highest that has ever been. So even if with the reduced sales, Russia is still making a lot of money um, on what they're selling when it comes to um, oil. But there were some like really um, interesting, like say Germany, they stopped like a pipeline project. Um, Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2. Um, so that was like a big signal. Like we are really trying to reduce our reliance here in the long term. But that was a trade side. And then the third part is, again, the individuals, right? Trying to target like Putin, his inner circle, the Russian oligarchs, individuals who um, were close to essentially the decision making, right? Freezing their assets, um, ability to move, um, travel, um, targeting major like Russian companies, um, freezing their assets so that they won't have access to the money that they have in the world. So they were the third, I think, um, kind of like a big item. And even seizing the assets of uh, the, the, the oligarchs in Russia, yeah. their assets all around the world. Even like seizing like yachts yeah, and like right. we read about them. <laughs> um, even they were not immune. But again, like all of these things um, have a lot of loopholes built into them, right? Um, even if it's this like unprecedented effort that we are talking about um, for banks, um, there are still banks who are allowed um, to deal in dollars, right? So I'm thinking like Gazprom, this like oil firm, they have a bank. They're still selling some oil and they have to be able to use dollar uh, to have these transactions and they're allowed to do that if they were to continue selling oil and natural gas. So there are some loopholes. Again, trade, there are some loopholes. Like we know that um, like China is picking up some of the lost trade. Um, some Asian partners are picking up some lost trade. Um, on the individual side, again, we talked about how it's really hard to trace these things because a lot of the money is offshore. It's hard to trace uh, where the money is. There are like billions of dollars laying around in the world that belongs to these Russian oligarchs, but we still do not know. Yeah. It's theirs. Um, so there are a lot of loopholes, but I think if you look at the Russian economy, some macroeconomic indicators show that they're doing okay, but I, I don't think that it's giving us a full picture of like how badly Russian economy is being hurt in the long run with all these things. Yeah, and we could probably do an entire show just on the sanctions regime uh, being applied on Russia right now and, and yeah. what, what more we could do. Uh, to punish Russia if we really wanted to crack down them. Absolutely. But like you mentioned, there are other major players out there in the world who are ignoring the sanctions regime and continue to deal directly with Russia, which gives them a lifeline. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're closing at the end of our time for today. I want to ask you this. I'm going to put you on the spot because <laughs> you're the expert in the room. Uh, will, will these sanctions overall work to deter Russia? I mean, will these sanctions end up hurting the nations that have depended on Russian grain exports, oil and gas, coal, fertilizer? Are, are they going to hurt Russia more or the mm -hmm. countries that have been relying on Russia more? Uh, and then could you predict what the end state might look oh, like wow. for these <laughs> sanctions? <laughs> when will they be lifted? I mean, is this going to go on for you know mm -hmm. 50 years like we did with Cuba and uh, you know <laughs> Iran? Uh, or perhaps maybe they're 
they've almost become irrelevant even six months into the war mm -hmm. uh, because so many of the other nations that are out there, powerful trading partners, are ignoring those sanctions. Yeah. I mean, wh wh how do you see these things playing out? Okay, that, that was tough. Yes, um, that's, that's the goal so, of the show. <laughs> so for the first part, are they working? Again, we really have to think about what we expect these sanctions to do. I personally do not believe that we can judge sanctions uh, against the expectation that Putin will pull out his troops yeah. out of out of Ukraine. Um, I, that cannot be a reasonable goal here. Um, but seeing how hard it has become for Russia to maintain its operations, uh, how difficult it has been for them um, to make kind of like inward movements into uh, into the country. Um, the challenges that they're uh, that they're experiencing, like financially for the war, financing the war, the logistics. Um, I think we cannot deny the impact that sanctions had on these challenges that the Russian army is currently experiencing. So I think that's one, right? So I would say that they're working to make the war costly for Russia. It's definitely getting costlier for them to sustain what they're doing. Um, the one thing that we didn't talk on the show, but I think it's really important to think about sanctions is what sanctions signal. Okay. Um, so I think in that sense, showing that um, the European countries, they were able to come together in a, such a short period of time in a very decisive way is a good signal that uh, essentially violations of the one international principle that we have, the protection of sovereignty, is not okay, mm. right? I think that in and of itself was a big success uh, for the next challenger uh, of an international um, sovereignty summit, right? Um, what's happening with Russia is probably being watched by like China when it comes to its like territorial aggressions or any other country. So I think in a way it was valuable in that sense. And looking at the long-term impact that um, Russian economy is having, I think it will be a deterrent for any kind of future aggression. Again, it becomes really costly uh, to sustain these operations. So in that, in that way, I would say, like, yes, sanctions are working in a way. Um, without the cutting the loopholes, especially in oil um, and natural gas, um, they would have less uh, of a course of power. But even then, it's becoming a push for the European government governments to think of ways to lower their reliance on Russian oil, that in of itself, I, I would say is a success too. But I am someone who's not expecting like Russia to pull out, again, troops, just because sanctions are in place. Um, so that, that's my long, long answer to the first one. No, so great, I think yes, yeah. right? There are a lot of ways in which these things are helping. When this will end? Um, not anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I think even... Even if the, this war ends and a peace agreement is signed, um, there's still a lot of like war crimes that's not being accounted for, um, more territorial ambition coming from the Russian government, more human rights violations that uh, became at the forefront of this discussion uh, with respect to Russia. I mean, there were still sanctions in place with like election meddling, like Crimea. Right. Um, so there is no lifting of them anytime soon, right? So I don't know if this will become the next Cuba where like this will be the new normal and there will be sanctions in place for Russia in the near future uh, in the maybe next 50 years. Potentially, um, 
I don't know what can happen if there is like a leadership change in the in the country, which is also not looking likely in the short run. Um, but there's also the long run. So I wish I had an answer for you. I mean, probably if I did, oh, this has been a great answer. I would have a different job, like doing policymaking um, for people. But um, I think even the people uh, here in the United States and uh, the NATO uh, alliance, uh, they're all working hard to figure out what does you know what does the end state look like for this, and nobody really knows. That's the issue with sanctions, right? Yeah. So sanctions are being imposed without really having a roadmap for when or how they'll be lifted. Yeah. I think we are really uh, quick and almost like good at uh, imposing sanctions without really thinking about when to lift them. Um, I, I think in general, this is something that governments should also kind of invest in, right? Um, same, same for invasions, right? Like um, Afghanistan, like yeah. Iraq, like thinking about like leaving. Yeah. That's the part where we are not good at planning, when we are actually putting these measures on. That is true. That's what we are seeing in Russia too. I don't think that anyone has that plan. They didn't even have time to, uh, I think, plan. Um, so that that's a million dollar question. And I think that's an overlooked one that we should be thinking more about in policy making. That's a great point. I, I would say this, uh, you, you know, I think everybody realizes that uh, in the economic world, uh, Russia is so heavily dependent on uh, oil and gas uh, exports as their main revenue supply. And one of the things that's that third or fourth order uh, impact that uh, Putin probably was not anticipating was the fact that the European Union uh, committed $220 billion uh, of financing to try and get themselves completely weaned off Russian oil and gas. That is a that is not an insignificant investment nope. on the part of the EU. And the 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 fact that they were forced to do this yeah. like i i would say is a, is a success um i mean not just like for i mean it was a reaction to the invasion itself but um the fact that there is a plan for future sanctioning um is the what what, what can come out of this i think yeah uh we're we're just about out of time uh uh which is unfortunate because there's so many other questions I'd like to ask you. But uh, Dr. Menevish uh, Jilazolu from the College of St. Olaf here in Northfield, Minnesota, thank you so much for joining yeah, us Yeah, thank today. you so much for having me. This was, this was fun. Where can our listeners find your research in case they'd like to read your findings firsthand? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have my own website. So okay. it's my, yeah, right. uh, it's very common among academics. So it's my first name, last name, dot com. Okay. <laughs> um, it's yeah, I, I tend to like put my working papers, like published papers in there on their like my research tab. Um, that would be the best place to go or like Google Scholar um, site. OK. Yeah. So you, the proper spelling of your name will be up here on the uh, on the station website awesome. <laughs> uh, for our recording and people will be able to find it there. Uh, thank you so much again for, for joining us. Today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.